Everybody. Welcome to the March 31st, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on Representative Ken Buck's sudden prominence in President Trump's Twitter feed for a position that he changed on the American Health Care Act. Buck has come under criticism for switching his stated support of the bill after telling Nine News and the Denver Post that he, quote, wasn't sold on the bill before the vote was supposed to happen last Friday. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, this sounds like when you look just the politics of the situation, especially since President Trump came out against the Freedom Caucus, that uh, Ken Buck looked at the tea leaves and said it is much better to be with the president than necessarily be with the Freedom Caucus. Will that move end up hurting him later? Oh, it certainly could. But at this moment, let's face it, it's so nice to have anyone in Washington saying anything nice about Colorado, because we'll talk about this more <laughs> later. But so Trump says something nice about Ken Buck. But meanwhile, Jeff Sessions is beating up Colorado right and left over cannabis and sanctuary cities with Betsy DeVos. We'll talk about her, too. We are, for some reason, in the spotlight in Washington, D.C., and I would rather if we could operate a little more in the dark. <laughs> David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, the Freedom Caucus was a serious thorn in President Trump's side last week, but it's been a thorn in the establishment GOP side for, I guess, seven years. Do you think this move by Ken Buck shows that it could be a little more fractured than we thought? Sure, because there's, as with any caucus, there's different members who have all their different districts and, and interests. I, I think he would have been better to stick with his original position because the the core problem, with the, 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 the Ryan bill had some good features in it, but it's would make even worse the death spiral that Obamacare is in. It's not sustainable, it's failing, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And the replacement bill didn't solve that and probably would have aggravated uh, the conditions on that. And until you, you get to the, the core problem of Obamacare, which is it, you, you think you can buy insurance for something way below the market rate, um, and get subsidized by other people who are going to be so stupid that they buy insurance that's vastly more expensive than they need. That's not a viable system, and the the Ryan bill left that left that terrible uh, problem in place. Penfield Tate joins us, attorney QTAC Rock, also a longtime state lawmaker. Uh, kind of flip flops are going back and saying that uh, I was for it before I was against it. Kind of a things those happen in politics. That's not terribly surprising, but the uh, power decision here between President Trump going after the Freedom Caucus and threatening primaries a good two and a half months into his presidency of a, uh, uh, a real strong conservative part of the House uh, and Ken Buck making a pretty clear political decision, that puts a little different flavor to it. What are your thoughts? You know, it does put a different flavor on it, and you're right. Flip-flopping or changing positions is not uncommon, and we sort of accept it so long as the person declares why they're changing position and what drove it. And in Ken Buck's case, the reason he is rightfully subject to criticism and question 
is it's unclear why he did an about-face. Um, and I think his original position in terms of not being sold on the bill was probably the right one. The bill had a host of problems, not the least of which is if you spend eight years demonizing the Affordable Care Act, and in that time you do the demonizing, but you didn't bother to sit down and think through what the comprehensive replacement would be, that's just stupidity. And that was the problem with the bill. In addition to what David pointed out, I would argue that it didn't go far enough in terms of it left more people uninsured than before, and it didn't cost any less. Uh, that doomed it to failure. And finally, the Freedom Caucus. Remember, these are the folks who got John Boehner so disgusted, he gave up, he jumped up and gave up the speakership. So um, their antics are, are, shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. And Nick Garcia rounds out our panel, Deputy Bureau Chief with Chalkbeat Colorado. So Ken Buck makes the decision to go with President Trump on this one rather than the House Freedom Caucus. Do you think this is the first sign of the House Freedom Caucus possibly losing some of their influence? I don't think this is the first sign. I think it is new evidence that this is going to happen. But I think that what Ken Buck flip-flopping here is, one, it's too little too late. I mean, the bill's already dead, so it's kind of pointless. I don't know why he did it. But secondly, it's just more evidence of how rushed this process was, where I don't think lawmakers really were able to get their arms around the bill, and it's just led to so much confusion about where people were on the process. In a 30 to 5 vote, the state Senate approved Colorado's $26.8 billion proposed budget this week. Among major points of discussion at the Capitol were the $500 million cuts impacting mostly rural hospitals and eliminating the $745,000 used to fund the Healthy Kids Survey, which focuses on drug use, mental health, and sexual behavior in middle and high school students. Patty, every year around the budget we see some different programs first cut in the Senate version or if it's the House version that comes first, and there's a lot of work to do between, between now and the finish line. Were you surprised to see some of the cuts we've seen so far from the, from the budget that passed the Senate? Well, I was surprised mostly to hear senators actually say this is a failure, but they passed it anyway. We have until May 10th to get the budget balanced. It has to be balanced, but we're going to see so many more things go in and out of this budget between what the House will do with it and sending it back to the Senate. You've got to assume they are hoping the plan for a transportation tax to go on the ballot in November comes through because then they can postpone some of those things. Mostly there's a lot of postponement of issues that need to be taken on. That Healthy Kids Survey, which keeps coming under fire every couple of years, you know, it's really a valuable tool if done correctly, so that's a shame to lose. We're also looking at just um, political cuts, like the d death and dying, the aid in dying, when here's this new thing, we voted for it, the provisions of the vote included we would do this study so we would be sure we weren't just pulling the plug on grandma and grandpa when they don't want it. That was a petty cut, and let's hope it gets back in. David, is there much that we can take from the budget process at this point, seeing that we still have about a month and change in the session? Sure, a lot, many things. First of all, that it passed the Senate 30 to 5 tells you it has strong bipartisan support. And it came from the Joint Budget Committee, which has, is equally balanced between the parties. And to put something in the budget, you need to get four, four of those six members, which means anything in it was put in it on a bipartisan basis. Um, this is the largest budget in the history of the state. Uh, our spending has been growing explosively in the Hickenlooper years. It's now about $29 billion, and it wasn't that long ago our state budget was about $10 billion. Uh, so they're spending everything they legally can. And, of course, if you want to spend more, 
all you have to do is ask. The Taxpayer's Bill of Rights doesn't say you can't spend money. It just says when you want to have spending go up even faster than the rate of population growth plus inflation, just ask the voters. And sometimes the voters say yes, sometimes they say no, depending on how specific and, uh, you are and what you want to spend the money on and whether it's a good idea. The core problem in the budget that crowds out everything else is now one quarter of the people in Colorado are on Medicaid, medical welfare with zero co-pays, no, no incentive at all uh, for people to, you know, not take the ambulance to the emergency room when you really, it may not be an emergency. And that was put in our budget by the huge expansion under Obamacare was done by Governor Hickenlooper acting unilaterally. It's a, a flaw in our system that one man can make such a dramatic th change in Colorado's budget. It's about a quarter of a billion dollars, uh, just the, the increase that we're, we're seeing coming up uh, in, in Medicaid. So if, if, we, if he hadn't done that, everything else in the budget would have been a lot easier this year. Ben, you have experience with state budget, state legislature. As a lawmaker, you are part of this. From what we've seen so far, is this, uh, according to Hoyle, what we can expect? And what do you expect in the next, I guess, six weeks left? Uh, you know, to a couple of David's points, it's important to understand the JBC drafts the budget, sends it to the legislature. It's three House members, three Senate members, and now it's three Democrats, three Republicans. Everything in the budget has a bipartisan basis of support uh, for the budget. The Senate has made some amendments. The House will make some amendments. It will go to a conference committee consisting of the JVC, and the bill that comes out will look remarkably like the budget bill that was introduced in the Senate in the first place. So there won't be very many major changes. I would say look for a couple of things. Um, the legislature is still grappling with this whole hospital provider fee issue and whether to pass legislation that allows you to sort of enterprise it and pull it out of the Tabor cap so that you get more spending room because the way the budget is structured now, it's really rural hospitals and rural communities that get shorted with some of these cuts. And I would argue they're the communities that most lead some of the investment because there aren't as many health care options in those communities. Um, with regard to, to David's point about the Medicaid expansion, that is true. But remember, we also drew a federal match as part of that program. And the, the offsetting benefit is if you look at Colorado, we've been growing explosively, uh, compounding our growth almost 2% a year for the last decade. There are a lot more people demanding a lot more services, and there were a lot more underinsured or uninsured people, and Medicaid helped bridge that gap because the reality is, is uninsured people don't go without health care. It's just you and I and other people who buy insurance subsidize it because hospitals and doctors will treat uninsured people. So we'll see a lot more of activity, but don't be surprised if the budget looks a lot like it did when it was introduced. Nick, you're one of our guys at the Capitol. You've been there as you've seen the different conversations in the hallways. What's the reaction to the budget process so far that you can tell us? Yeah, real quick, just a little fact check. The funding for the Healthy Kids Survey has already been restored on a bipartisan vote in the Senate. Uh, that's expected to stay there uh, when the funding moves over to the House. But I think what's fascinating me the most about this budget process is that, as David pointed out, this is the largest budget that the state has ever had. And lawmakers and the governor have both said that this is the most complicated and most 
difficult process they've had to go through in their legislative careers. And that's taking into account when they had to slash the budget after the Great Recession. So, I mean, more money, more problems. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Attorney General Jeff Sessions continued his charges against so-called sanctuary cities this week. In response, on Monday, Aurora City Council decided to formally declare Aurora a welcoming city versus a sanctuary city. Meanwhile, the Colorado Freedom Defense Act passed in the State House on Thursday and would exclude Colorado from participating in federal efforts to develop ethnic or religion-based registries or internment camps. David, let's look at the sanctuary cities versus welcoming cities situation first. Is this a game of semantics? Well, obviously, yes, but it, it, whatever the policies are, are what they are. Some of the things uh, Attorney General Sessions doesn't like, I think, is cities being prudent in, in terms of you're, you're letting somebody out of jail because they're, they're making bail, and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, wants to put a detainer on them to hold them for a period, you know, for possible deportation or whatever. Well, the, the courts have said that may be unconstitutional. It's a violation of somebody's Fourth Amendment rights when they're, they're being held and there's no, you know, they've made bail on one thing, and there's no warrant authorizing them to be held by the federal government. So I, I, I think he's wrong to criticize cities that, that are more respectful of constitutional rights. There, there are other things in which, many ways in which cities can be non-cooperative in law enforcement. The, under the Supreme Court precedence, it's usually okay to have conditional grants as long as the conditions are clearly stated. And the things that Sessions is talking about cutting are federal grants to law enforcement where cooperation with federal immigration law is expressly a condition in the grant. And these grants are they're not that big as a matter of the, the city's total budget or even law enforcement budgets. So I think those are uh, likely going to uh, be upheld by the courts. And in terms of no, no regis ethnic registries and internment camps, first of all, this doesn't address the existing internment camp under DIA. But at least it, it <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and I think it, it, it's, it's extremely paranoid uh, for people to talk themselves into this hysteria that there's going to be a Muslim registry or internment camps. However, it's still a good thing, you know, and even if, if Donald Trump is actually not secretly planning uh, concentration camps everywhere, it's a good principle to put in Colorado law. Who, who knows how it might be helpful 50 or 100 years from now to have that protection expressly stated. Pam, let's start on that last one that David mentioned. You see a bill like this saying uh, we will be not on registries about religion and internment camps. A, in a split legislature, does this even get to Governor Hickenlooper? And B, is no. this simply grandstanding? Yes. Okay. Now can I make my other point? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> assuming Jeff Sessions isn't doing this just to divert attention from his involvement in the Russian conspiracy, um, you know, it's pretty clear settled law. He can't necessarily claw back money with conditions that were established after the fact. And part of this hysteria needs to be brought in check. David raised a good point about how ICE works, but the other thing uh, that, that people need to recognize is Aurora and Denver and other cities, if they get notification from ICE that they want to detain someone, what these cities have basically said is, sure, we'll hold them. You get four hours. When you told us you wanted to hold them, you should have made plans in terms of what you wanted to do with them. Denver, Aurora, and other city taxpayers should not foot the bill for what ICE wants to do with people they want to detain. And a number of these cities who are being branded sanctuary cities are simply saying, we'll hold people. 
And when the courts tell us we have to release them, if you give us notification, you come get them so it's on your dime and your time and not ours. And that's fair. That's, that's a fair statement to make uh, to the feds. The other thing to keep in mind is Aurora said something very interesting last week. When you look at their entire book of people who are charged, two-tenths of a percent of the people who are charged with a crime in Aurora are undocumented aliens. Two-tenths of a percent. So this is not a massive problem. It's kind of a, a mountain out of a molehill, but again, it's part of the political dynamic that this administration is using to work people up. Nick, uh, clearly immigration and national issues are on the minds of Colorado lawmakers. What do you expect from this bill that we've seen about registries and internment camps? Yeah, I mean, I think the bill's dead when it gets to the Senate, which is any day now. Um, I do think that, you know, Governor Hickenlooper has made a point, you know, just in a briefing yesterday with reporters of, of coming out against, you know, sessions and, you know, pointing out that all law enforcement in Colorado is complying. Uh, there's no systematic abuse here of, of not cooperating. And I mean, I just think that this is a lot of political posturing. In fact, I was thinking about who was actually providing sanctuary for uh, undocumented immigrants and it's churches. I mean... And we'll see how that works out, but it's not the state. Patty, Sanctuary City, Welcoming City, Tomato Tomato. We're a very welcoming TV show here, too. <laughs> no, it, it's all in how the feds want to interpret it. And basically, they are saying, if you don't hold the person as long as we want you to because we haven't bothered to look at our fax machine, which is usually where the notification comes, or we can't find a truck or a van to pick up the, uh, pick up the person, you're stuck with it. Well, that means the taxpayers are stuck with the fee for jailing them, but also maybe with the lawsuit that comes up because you have held that person beyond when you the courts say you constitutionally can. Great interview yesterday with the El Paso County, uh, um, no, the Weld County Sheriff on Carter Public Radio saying, look, we are doing everything we can constitutionally. It's not fair to brand us this way. And Weld County is not exactly what you would say, very welcoming place, but not a sanctuary county. Um, as for the legislation, I hope it goes through. It would have been nice to have had that bill on the books back when Camp Amachi was set up as an internment camp for the Japanese Americans. Mm -hmm. In a recent speech at the Brookings Institution, U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos, who recently praised Denver for its support of school choice, called the choices in Denver an illusion. DeVos said, the benefits of making choices accessible are canceled out when you don't have a full menu of options, referring to the lack of vouchers and more charter schools. In response, DPS Superintendent Tom Bosberg respectfully disagreed, stating that public dollars should be used for public schools. Penn, uh, school choice, charter schools, all this is a big deal in Colorado. What do you make of what we've heard from the Education Secretary? Well, first of all, remember this is the Education Secretary who was applauding historically black colleges and universities as an example of choice in higher education, seemingly ignorant of the fact that due to racism and Jim Crow laws, black high school graduates couldn't attend the state colleges and universities in their states. So they had to create an entirely separate set of institutions for black students only. Starting there. 
You know, I, bravo for Tom Bosberg and his comment. And frankly, what he said pretty much reflects the sentiment, I would argue, on a bipartisan basis in the state of Colorado. When I served, we saw a number of voucher bills. And it was interesting, the coalition that would form, because a lot of rural legislators would say, we're not for this. Nobody wants to put a private school in our communities. Our kids aren't going to get any more choice. And why should state tax dollars go to fund a bunch of fancy schools in the suburbs of Denver or Colorado Springs. The other flaw that has always existed with a lot of this voucher legislation in Colorado is you can't, the parents don't get the choice, the schools pick the students. And if you're a family that can't afford to get your child to the school you want to go to, the private school, you're out of luck. And if the private school, because it has a particular religious affiliation, doesn't want to accept your child or your family, you're out of luck. And so choice is illusory in this conversation unless it matters whether the institution chooses versus the family and the student. Nick, as Deputy Bureau Chief of Chalkbeat, Colorado, I imagine you might have a viewpoint or two on this one. The floor is yours. Well, I don't have a viewpoint necessarily, but I do think to, to provide some context, I think it's important to understand when we're talking about choice, there are two broad camps. One camp says, let the free market, let parents decide what schools work best. And there is another camp, and that's Betsy, Betsy DeVos's camp, and there's another camp that says, you have no choice without quality. And that's where uh, Tom Bosberg and uh, U.S. Senator Michael Bennett fall under, where they say the state has an obligation to ensure that charter schools are doing well by their kids. Um, DPS's choice program is very popular within the city. Um, some 87% of kindergartners and sixth graders participated this last year. 73% of ninth graders participated. And overwhelmingly, most of the kids are getting into their first or second choice schools. One last note, there is a push from Denver charter school operators um, who want to expand quicker. They feel like DPS is not letting them expand quick enough. So that is a local tension that will be playing out over the next year. Patty, while we made the national comments, we being Denver, uh, in, in the national comments from Betsy DeVos, do you think there'll be any impact from her comments here in the Centennial State? Yes, a lot of irritation, which we're already seeing. Amazing that the same day she's saying this at the Brookings Institution, we're just named number one again for choice. You know, we've had the charter schools here for 25 years now. This is the anniversary of charter schools in Colorado. And for the most part, although there certainly are legal issues in different counties, it's been a big success. So in this case, I'm glad that Bozberg and Bennett have stood up for us, and I think others will continue to. David, the Independence Institute has uh, done a white paper or two on school choice and the yeah. entire education center as part of the Institute. Uh, your thoughts on what we've heard from the Education Secretary? Well, as the Brookings, the Brookings Institution rightfully praised Denver for solving one of the problems we talked about, which is transportation. And it has a innovative transportation program so that if you're participating in the existing choice programs within the city, like you know, basically, they, they have a voucher program for kindergarten, which is apparently working quite well, and they help with the, tra they provide the transportation uh, for the families that, that need that assistance. So that's really on outstanding. But as it's, it's also say you have no choice without quality. And look at the quality of the education that a lot of kids are getting in traditional DPS schools as opposed to the DPS charter schools. Um, and the test scores that are coming out of that, uh, they're often not very, not very good. And I don't think the DPS as a whole, if you, you look at their 
you know, how many people graduate from middle school or high school in being proficient in reading? Not, not nearly enough. So there is a quality problem in DPS, and they should not be. They should be more willing to allow the successful public choice alternatives like charter schools uh, to continue to expand as rapidly as there are parents who want to go and families who want to go to them. Charter schools are public schools, so you and they have absolutely have strong guarantees of quality assurance, more so than uh, neighborhood schools, which almost never get shut down uh, for bad performance. Badly performing charter schools do not get their charters renewed. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. And as always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, we learned this week that although Denver's growth is slowing a little bit, we are still getting more than 1,000 people net a month moving to this city. As we head into pothole season, I would like to suggest that no one is allowed to come into this town without a big bucket of asphalt so they can help fill in the potholes in the roads they are about to help ruin. If that was put on the ballot, Patty, I'm pretty sure that would be winning a landslide. Great idea. David. And we can imagine the asphalt supply store in Goodland, Kansas, to <laughs> supply people as they begin their, their trek into Colorado. Uh, Venezuela has now entered the terminal stage of socialism with the Supreme Court, which is just a bunch of lackeys for the communist dictatorship, declaring that the legislature, which is... Uh, held by enemies of the communist dictatorship who won the election fair and square no longer exists and so the president and the supreme court uh, now have all the the lawmaking powers so we're 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 down to overt dictatorship uh, which Venezuela has been moving towards ever since it elected that socialist Hugo Chavez in the first place um, go back and look and see which American politicians praised uh, the Chavez regime over the years Penn Mike Flynn, the former NSA director of 27 Days Tenure, who initially began by saying that the Russian conspiracy was a bunch of political grandstanding and then either resigned or was forced to step down because of his connection thereto, has now agreed to speak in front of the sitting committee so long as he's given an immunity bath. Tells you something. Nick. Uh, one of my favorite restaurants in the neighborhood, Jake's, over at uh, 38th and Walnut, is changing hands. Today's their last day, so I'm going there for lunch. Let's get to the hardest part of the show. Say something nice about somebody. Patty? Appropriate that the snow is falling. Gary DeFrange, who's run Winter Park for decades, is retiring. People forget that we own Winter Park, and it's a great amenity for Denver. David? Last Saturday night, David Gilkey, a uh, photojournalist who was killed in action in Afghanistan, uh, was posthumously given a uh, Press Association Award in, in Washington, D.C., and Gilkey uh, started his photojournalist career as an intern at the Boulder Daily Camera before uh, moving to uh, other papers and then NPR. Penn. To Mother Nature, thank you for the rain and snow. Keep it coming, but not too much snow. Nick. Uh, State Representative Dan Thurlow, a Republican from the Western Slope, sticking by his guns to support uh, different alternatives to alleviate some pressure from the state budget and transportation. That is all the time we have tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our new Monday mystery favorite, Hinterland. The murder mystery series from Wales is now on every Monday night at 7 p.m. And this Monday, a new masterpiece, Sherlock, follows it. As always, check out the CIO podcast on iTunes and Google Play and our segments of the show on Facebook and Twitter. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Mm -hmm.